0: I think we can all agree that certainly among the most pressing national security foreign policy issues facing us today is the relationship between the United States and China. And I'm so pleased to have with us today one of Washington's foremost experts on Sino-American relations, namely Bonnie Glazer. Bonnie Glaser is a senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. And she has worked on issues related to Asia-Pacific security with a particular focus on Chinese foreign policy and uh, security policy. She has spent three decades focused on these issues, um, Asia-Pacific geopolitics and US policy. Uh, Prior to joining CSIS, she served as a consultant for the Departments of Defense and State She has published widely in key journals like the Far Eastern Economic Review and the Korean Journal of Defense Analysis. You'll often see her quoted in the New York Times, the failing New York Times, as the president might say, (laughs) and the International Herald Tribune, (laughs) there it is, (laughs) exhibit A. She's currently a board member of the US Committee of the Council for Security Cooperation of the Asia-Pacific and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And she has a BA in Political Science from Boston University and her master's degree in International Economics and Chinese Studies from Johns Hopkins. Please join me in welcoming my friend Bonnie Glazer.
1: Thank you, uh, good morning everyone. Uh, it's really, it's, it's a pleasure uh, to be with you this morning and talk to you a little bit uh, about China and about US-China relations. Uh, I'm sure you all know that uh, there was a uh, summit uh, in the first week of April, April six, seven, President Trump hosted uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping in Mar-a-Lago. Um, and uh, to start out with just a little uh, anecdote, the, uh, the uh, President Trump had had a phone call during the, uh, I, I think it was uh, after, after the election and before the inauguration with Tsai Ing-wen, Taiwan's president, it's first time that any US president has talked on the phone that it has been uh, at least known publicly uh, with uh, Taiwan's president. And this was seen as very much as a challenge by Beijing to their claim of uh, sovereignty over Taiwan. And so I heard that uh, the Trump administration was actually quite eager to engage uh, with China and with Xi Jinping very early on. And so they offered to have uh, Xi Jinping be the first foreign uh, leader to visit Mar-a-Lago. And apparently the Chinese declined because the president had not accepted what is known as the one China policy uh, that uh, uh, China that we acknowledge, we actually don't accept that Taiwan is part of China, but uh, we have since uh, the uh, signing of our three communiques uh, with China, we have accepted a series of understandings, including that we acknowledge that China claims uh, sovereignty over uh, over Taiwan, but we do accept that uh, the government of China, the People's Republic of China, represents China in the international community. So, of course, it turned out that Japan's prime minister, uh, uh, Shinzo Abe, became the first leader uh, to get to go to uh, Mar-a-Lago, so Xi Jinping missed his uh, opportunity. But he did finally get there in, uh, in early April. And uh, unlike the Sunnylands meeting that President Obama had had with Xi Jinping in California, which covered a vast number of issues and talked about their visions for the future. My understanding is that uh, President Trump really wanted to focus on two issues. And one was trade. Uh, We have uh, the largest bilateral trade deficit uh, with with China, uh, far greater than any other country and the United States is now determined to get China to address that uh, trade deficit. Of course, there's a lot of other economic problems in the relationship that need addressing as well. Uh, but uh, the one of the things that came out of Mar-a-Lago was an, uh, an understanding of a new sort of mechanism we've had this strategic and economic dialogue with china under the obama administration and i guess every administration comes in they like to do things a little differently so they've created a new comprehensive dialogue and one of the areas that of course they will address will be trade and economic issues the chinese propose to the united states that there will be established a a 100-day period and after that we will actually be rolling out some of the agreements that we have with China. And a lot of this goes to Chinese willingness to open up new sectors for investment uh, for American companies. So for example, if you're an American company and you want to invest in autos, uh, the Chinese company that you're that you're having a joint venture with, because you can't you can't establish yourself alone uh, in, in China, you have to work with another company. And that company has to have a 51% or greater uh, share. And there have been other areas like the um, the financial sector has been opening up a little bit. Um, and then there's of course many barriers to imports of US products, including Ameri- American beef. Um, and that has been a problem in Europe actually as well. So trade is really, I would say, um, the n- number one issue for uh, for President Trump. I, of course, that we heard that during the campaign and the many uh, things that he, that he said at criticizing uh, China. At one point, he said China is raping our country. So uh, not surprising that trade is, uh, is so important. Um, on the security side, the, uh, the biggest issue for this administration is North Korea. And what has changed from the last administration to this one is we have had North Korea test its first nuclear weapon in 2006. And it has been developing its capabilities. Uh, it's, it's tested uh, much more rapidly in the last year than it has ever before. So really since Kim Jong-un has come to power, great progress has been made. And we are looking at the potential over the next few years of North Korea being able to put a nuclear warhead on a long-range ballistic missile and deliver it to the United States, which would essentially make it an existential threat. And so this has really motivated, I think, the United States. And when President Obama met with President Trump for the first time during the transition, this was the issue that he emphasized um, over all of the others, that this was going to be the first uh, issue that would come up for him, and and President Trump really took this to heart. He uh, asked for some security briefings, intelligence briefings uh, on North Korea, and he has decided that he really wants to try and address this issue. Now, I must admit uh, this this is a tough nut to crack, so i'm not, uh, I'm not totally very optimistic, but China is the key uh, to solving North Korea in many ways. We can't uh, do this alone and put this on China's plate and expect China to do it for us. We have to have our own strategy, but we cannot exclude China's role. China has to work with us. And the reason is that China supplies 90% of North Korea's crude oil, um, so North Korea simply cannot function without China, and 88% of North Korea's trade with the outside world is with China. Uh, So we begin with, of course, the existing UN Security Council resolutions. The last one was last uh, November. And uh, that called for capping the amount of coal that any country can uh, import from North Korea. And once again, China has imported most of the coal. And China has now said that it will, in fact, uh, ban all of the imports of coal because it has reached the cap allowable under the last UN Security Council resolution. And so has said it will ban coal for the rest of the year and um, the Trump administration I think is really hammering at the Chinese uh, to get them to abide by that and by all of the other um, uh, elements of the UN Security Council uh, resolution and so this was really a very important topic at mar-a-lago and since then president trump has called xi jinping twice and i'm told that xi jinping is getting a little irritated by so many phone calls he he, the way that somebody from the chinese embassy put it to me was that our uh, our president should not be treating him as the desk officer on (laughs) north korea (laughs) Um, but I think you can imagine how these phone calls go, you know, when President Trump sort of calls up and says, you know, so, you know, you, you, you're doing what you need to do or you, you, you're not importing any coal, right? And so I think, uh, uh, I think all leaders that are dealing with President Trump are learning from a very new style uh, of, our, of our new president. Um, but what's interesting to me is that I think President Trump has made this issue of North Korea and China's cooperation Uh, the litmus test of the U.S.-China relationship. And whereas prior presidents have sought to work with China on North Korea, they have really never quite framed it in this way. Uh, So the failure of China to cooperate could lead to um, great friction uh, in the U.S.-China relationship. And so I think that that is what is really new. Um, And Xi Jinping and and China uh, very highly value the US uh, relationship. This is indeed for China, the most important bilateral relationship and it's not just because we are um, integrated in, uh, in our economic uh, ties, uh, but it is of course in because the United States is still the sole superpower. Uh, we have a great deal of military capability that we can use um, if we want to prevent China from Uh, uh, defending its own security interests in the region. And I will get to talking about the South China Sea um, and Taiwan, which are both uh, elements of that. So uh, Xi Jinping, I think, is inclined to cooperate, but we'll see how far uh, that goes. Uh, I shall move on and talk a little bit about, um, I'll, I'll go to the South China Sea next, where... China built in uh, 2015 and 2016 seven artificial islands uh, in the southern part of the South China Sea. It came uh, as a great surprise to the United States and, um, I talk to people in the policy community and in the intelligence community, and I think they both point fingers at each other (laughs) and say it was your fault. Uh, But uh, the U.S. was caught somewhat off balance, did not really know what the Chinese were doing. Uh, Those today, those, uh, I call them military outposts, they do in fact have hardened shelters for aircraft, they have surface-to-air missiles, Uh, they have close-in weapon systems. The Chinese have claimed that they would be used for civilian purposes, and I'm I'm sure there's a lighthouse or two that's intended for navigation, but these are really intended to be uh, places where the Chinese can use to have better maritime domain awareness so they know what's going on in the South China Sea, and so that they can coerce uh, their neighbors. Uh, in fact, every year the Chinese uh, declare a fishing ban uh, in uh, large parts of the South China Sea, although uh, not yet in the Spratlys, I expect it will extend there, but it's in the northern part of the South China Sea in the Paracels, and this year extends up to the East China Sea, in parts of the East China Sea, uh, where uh, uh, Japan uh, has uh, uh, territorial disputes with China. And this, um, this fishing banner just went into effect uh, May 1st, and this is just an example where the Chinese will send out their Coast Guard ships and uh, harass and intimidate uh, fishermen from other, other countries. Uh, we, we saw a big, um, a, a, a tense episode in 2012 around this one area called Scarborough Shoal, which is claimed by the Philippines. And the United States tried to mediate when there was a confrontation between the Philippines military and the Chinese Coast Guard. And I should mention that some of these Chinese Coast Guard ships used to be Navy ships. They're now painted white, (laughs) so they're really very big. And the Chinese are now building um, very large uh, uh, displacement uh, Coast Guard uh, vessels, 12,000 tons. Uh, They're bigger than most of the navies uh, of, of the regional states. Um, and, and, and so this, um, this gives the Chinese the ability uh, to really harass other, uh, other countries, fishermen and coast guards. Uh, recently at CSIS, my, uh, my uh, uh, research staff and I looked into the open source uh, material on all of the uh, major incidents where they were ramming use of water cannons uh, or shooting uh, in the South China Sea, and we found that between 2010 and 2016, uh, that there, at 72 percent of these incidents involved a Chinese ship. It, it's always difficult to know who precipitated uh, the uh, the incident, uh, but the Chinese are involved in uh, in a vast uh, vast number of these uh, these incidents, and and so uh, these new. Islands in the in the South China Sea are going to enable uh, China to operate um, uh, with uh, really with ease uh, to intimidate and interfere with perhaps delivery of uh, supplies. Um, There's one area called Second Thomas Shoal where the Philippines has this rusted out World War II cutter that it deliberately beached there. Um, many, many years ago uh, in order to claim that particular land feature. And it's virtually underwater, and they, they have a contingent of Marines that actually lives on this ship. And of course they have to deliver supplies there. And so every few weeks they're delivering supplies and every three months, they're actually swapping out the Marines because how many months can you make a (laughs) contingent of Marines serve on this rusting out ship? And every once in a while, they actually have to get some concrete in because they have to reinforce the ship. And uh, there have been incidents where the Chinese have tried to block the delivery of supplies. And recently they've been air air dropping them uh, because it's a little bit safer. So uh, there's a lot of friction in the South China Sea where uh, we could have potential confrontations. The US could get involved because we are allies with the Philippines, uh, because we do have obligations under our treaty if there is force used against uh, the Philippines, even if it's not a naval ship. um, So the the Philippines could uh, invoke the treaty. Uh, another concern, of course, is the potential for a confrontation between U.S. and Chinese naval vessels um, or aircraft, which occasionally um, operate in very close proximity. And under the Obama administration, we did negotiate uh, a set of agreements between our two countries to uh, try and, and protect our uh, safety between our Navy ships and and aircraft, but of course, Uh, political will is necessary in order to adhere to these, Xi Jinping has actually instructed his operators, both pilots and uh, uh, captains of Navy ships, uh, to abide by the procedures that have been agreed upon. Uh, But the United States, one of the things that we have been doing, um, which uh, was in abeyance for a few years, but then resumed in, in 2015, was that we conduct freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. This is actually a global program that the Navy created and it started in 1979. So it's certainly not against China. And it's just to preserve freedom of the seas. And uh, so the United States, although under the Trump administration, has not yet um, started those freedom of navigation operations, my understanding is that we will be doing so very soon. I think they were probably delayed a bit because of the Xi Jinping-Trump uh, summit. And um, one of my pet peeves is that we should be doing these operations normally regardless of whether we are having summits or anything that we're doing with China because this is just something that is in uh, American interests. So um, i say a few words uh, about uh, Taiwan, which... Um, uh, I mentioned, of course, earlier, and uh, Taiwan. I know Taiwan's uh, president well, uh, and they, they, uh, she comes from the party, the uh, Democratic um, Progressive uh, Party, which is uh, is known in in Taiwan to really favor uh, independence. And, and Taiwan is, many of us would say, is de facto independent, uh, but it really is not um, legally uh, independent. And We had a president in Taiwan uh, about uh, nine years ago who did try to push the envelope of independence. And it created a lot of tension between Taiwan and China and also between the U.S. and Taiwan. Um, But uh, since then, I think um, uh, there's been far less tension uh, across the strait and a a continuously strengthening U.S.-Taiwan relationship. And we see this a lot in the military and security realm. Uh, recently, there have been, uh, it has been uh, made known publicly, uh, the number of military exchanges that we have with Taiwan annually, um, it's in the thousands. Um, and uh, we, we uh, our Pacific Command uh, works with Taiwan, very closely, but we have strict limits on things that we do with Taiwan, which are really not in law, they are just a result of our practice. And I think those kinds of things um, have have made it difficult for the US and Taiwan to work more closely. So I think under this administration we may see, for example, higher level officials be uh, allowed to visit Taiwan. Uh, we may see restrictions on Taiwan officials, <clears throat> for example taiwan 's foreign minister is not allowed to come to Washington. He can come to any place else in the United States but not allowed to come to Washington. so these things are are, 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 are silly really um, they don 't serve uh, american interest uh, and and so I think um, probably we will we will see uh, the opening of uh, uh, FTA talks between the US and Taiwan. This is something that Taiwan has wanted very much and they are quite protectionist. And so I think that the Trump administration will demand uh, that uh, Taiwan address some of the issues in, uh, in the realm of protecting intellectual property as well as, um, so, uh, as their high tariffs in some areas. And they also ban the import of American beef uh, and pork. Um, and these issues will have to get addressed. Uh, but Taiwan, um, as many as of you may know, very much uh, marginalized in the international community, and China is making life very difficult for Taiwan because their president is from this pro-independence uh, party, the DPP. And uh, I think the United States does need to step up and do more to try and help Taiwan where it can. Um, and there are examples of a few things that we have done. In fact, recently, I think about a month ago, we had a meeting of all of the foreign ministers who are part of the counter um, ISIS coalition and uh, Taiwan's representative here in Washington Uh, was invited to participate. And so that was an example of something that the United States can do for Taiwan. And one of the reasons we could do that is because China's not part of the the counter ISIS coalition. So where China is not present, uh, the US can do more to help Taiwan. Um, If the United States um, were to, uh, for example, as President Trump initially said, not honor the one China policy, and try to establish or even just pr- even if not establish diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but to significantly uh, um, promote that relationship in ways that were uh, uh, spilled into the official realm, uh, challenging Chinese sovereignty, then I think that that could create a, 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 a very um, even perhaps um, irrep- um, irreparable Uh, rift in the U.S.-China relationship. This is the one issue that Beijing is most sensitive about. Um, And and so I think that the U.S. um, can try to improve its relationship with Taiwan, but in a way that does not cause a crisis uh, in the U.S.-China relationship. And so I hope that we will do more uh, with Taiwan uh, going forward. So uh, I would say those are really the three most important of the security issues. It's Korea, uh, South China Sea, and uh, Taiwan in the, in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, I should mention uh, a couple of domestic challenges that Xi Jinping faces, which I think really intersect with whether or not China is going to try and, and, and challenge the United, the United States going forward, or even put more pressure on its neighbors, we have the 19th party Congress coming up in China. And uh, this is very important. It marks the, um, the midpoint between Xi Jinping's two five-year terms. And so he is just finishing up his first five-year term, and he will be serving another one. And this is an opportunity for Xi Jinping to put his own people on the standing committee of the Politburo and on the Politburo. Because there continues to be individuals in China um, and groups who have tried to block the implementation of some of the things that Xi Jinping wants to do. And I think this is particularly true in the area of economic reform. At the third plenum of the Chinese Communist Party, Three years ago, Xi Jinping laid out a whole list of economic reforms that he had planned to implement. But at the end of the day, we have seen very few of those actually um, implemented. And so Xi Jinping really does need to put his own people uh, on the Politburo and, and remove those who still have some allegiance to prior Chinese leaders like Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, for example. So this is a very important moment uh, for Xi Jinping. And at this particular time in the run-up to the plenum, which will be held in the October-November time frame, Xi Jinping does not want any real problems in uh, foreign policy. So I think in that sense, he doesn't welcome U.S. pressure on him at this moment on North Korea. And the Chinese, I think, want everything to go well up until the Party Congress. But I think after the Party Congress, I I will close with this, that we are likely to see renewed tension between the U.S. and and China on these issues as well as others. Uh, The Chinese are feeling their oats in the international community. Um, In fact, when Xi Jinping was at the Davos meeting this year and he championed globalization and almost put China forward as the new world leader, uh, I don't think that the Chinese are in any position uh, to take over the space of global leadership. And in fact, I think that their contribution to global governance uh, thus far is limited. Um, I always viewed China as pretty much of a selfish power. Uh, the Chinese care first and foremost about themselves. Um, of course, we're now in an America-first mode, so <laughs> um, maybe we're learning from Xi Jinping. Uh, but this is, um, th- this is uh, I think that the Chinese uh, view themselves uh, as having withstood... Uh, a Some aspects of the international system that are unfavorable to China that they see particularly as unfavorable to China, and as as uh, their power uh, expands, uh, whether it 's economically uh, uh, or militarily and also in terms of political influence on its neighbors and other countries around the world, that I think that there will be more changes that China will want to make in uh, in the post-World War II international system. And as a result, this relationship, I think, between the US and China will become increasingly competitive. Um, And the challenge, of course, is to find ways that we can cooperate with China where we can continue to shape its interests um, and its behavior going forward. So I see the US-China relationship as a work in progress, but I see many challenges Um, happy to take some questions. You know, Secretary Tillerson talked to the State Department this past week, and I read the text of his speech. And he told the um, the, the State Department staff uh, that we essentially have to think about our values and our interests separately. And I must admit, I find that a little bit disturbing because I think that our interests are inextricably linked with our values. And so the message that he gave was, uh, we have to understand that every relationship we have with a country is different. They're each unique. And where possible, we, it, we will work to advance human rights. So when it comes to China, almost every president has talk to the Chinese about uh, the differences that we have in human rights. But very few have been willing to make it the number one, two, or three issue. Some presidents, I think, have done a particularly good job. Um, in, For example, I think uh, George W. Bush often met with uh, Chinese dissidents at the White House. It was made very, very public. and It was often on the eve of, hosting China's president or his own visit uh, to, to China. And I thought that uh, things like that sent uh, very important messages. I don't know what President Trump will be willing to do. He hasn't yet met with the Dalai Lama, for example, which is something that all presidents do. I have the impression that there has been this quiet understanding between the United States and China that if the, if the China does more in one area, that we'll do something in another. Some of these have been explicit, where President Trump has said, if Xi Jinping does more in North Korea, we'll give him a good trade deal. But I'm guessing it goes farther than that, that um, that we uh, either have said explicitly or, or implicitly that uh, the US will do less to call out human rights or challenge China, or maybe even on the issue of Taiwan, where in fact, President Trump said, uh, I would not necessarily have another phone call with Tsai ing unless Xi Jinping thinks it's okay, um, which is, you know, remarkable. Uh, so I think human rights must be part of who we are as a people, and it should be manifest in in, in our foreign policy. There are times, of course, where... We're, we're, we're hypocritical, it's probably the best term that you can use, um, and, and sometimes we have to be. Uh, but um, it, it should always be, in, in my view, a, a part of our approach to every country. And the situation in China is, um, is deteriorating. There's been uh, more, a sort of tighter crackdown on the ability of, uh, of rights groups to operate. There's a new NGO law uh, that we're not even sure. It just went into effect January 1st. We're not even sure how it will be uh, enforced. And so it's a very negative trend overall in terms of political freedoms in, in, in China. And so I hope that, uh, that the Trump administration will do more on human rights, but we have yet to see. Uh, China is, is very much run by the Communist Party. And so the party is over the government. Um, Almost every every senior person, maybe every person in government in China, is a member of the party. Uh, this is if, if you're in the military, the the army also has to be loyal to the party. So the government itself is structured around a, a state council, and then under that state council, you have all the ministries, many of which are very similar to ours. So you would have a the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is like our State Department, and then you have uh, a finance ministry, uh, commerce. Uh, so it's not too dissimilar in the, in the government portion. That is under the State Council. But the real decision-makers are the standing committee of the Politburo, the Pol- and, and there's now seven members. That changes. It can go up and down. Under Hu Jintao, it was nine. Then under that is the Politburo, which has 25 members. Um, and then under that is the Central Committee, um, which has, I'm guessing I think it's 300-some-odd members. I don't remember the exact number. maybe a little bit larger than that, in fact. And all of these people um, are, I would use the word, elected in quotes because they're not elected by the people, but they're elected by a select number of people in the party. And so the Central Committee would elect the Politburo and then uh, they elect the, uh, the Standing Committee. And so the degree of political participation in the system is very, very limited. Um, at the lowest level, um, below the county, uh, there are local elections. And years ago, when we're talking decades, when they held that, those first elections, I think many in the United States and people, those of us who are China watchers, somewhat naively thought that would be the future, that we would see the elections at higher levels. Um, But that has not happened. Um, And there have been uh, certainly people at very senior levels in China who've been more open to political participation. But I would say this particular Leader Xi Jinping does not uh, does not appear to be. But if you're interested in reading more, I'd be happy to give you a suggestion of a of a book. But yeah, it's a, it. I, I would say that's about the quick summary that I could give you. Um, yes, here. The question was about uh, the role of the Philippines in in the in the relationship, and uh, of course. Uh, As you said, President Trump did just have a phone call with the Philippines' President Duterte. And what's worth noting here is that the Philippines' uh, foreign policy, and particularly its approach to China, changed fundamentally when President Duterte came to power. So his predecessor was very tough on China and filed a case against China um, regarding the South China Sea claims and won um, about 99% uh, of what they uh, they had, they had um, filed in the case. Um, so it was a resounding victory for the Philippines. And then a new president came in, Duterte, who essentially put this victory on the shelf and said, well, at some point I'm gonna get back to it. But right now, I'm gonna have better relations with China. And one of the reasons is that China has, um, as many of you know, uh, it, it's become a, a fairly wealthy country in many ways. And that's not to say that it isn't still a developing country, because there are a a very large number of people who still live below the poverty line. But when it comes to their um, investment in other countries, there's this big project called the Belt and Road. Xi Jinping, this coming week, is holding a huge summit for over 60, maybe 70 representatives, countries around the world. Um, And this Belt and Road is to build infrastructure all around uh, China's periphery. And now it extends to Europe and to Africa. There's a maritime road as well as the traditional overland Silk Road. And he's trying to build, I would call it a project in um, making everybody around China more dependent on China. So it's sort of a more China-centric order, if you will. Uh, And so, President duterte uh, had been was is really unwilling, I think to challenge China because he wants more of this largesse it 's the economic benefits of being a neighbor of China and under his predecessor Aquino, uh, the Philippines had sort of been in the doghouse it wasn 't getting much help from uh, from, from China, and that has changed. There's a, a lot of projects now that China is involved in. So um, the question, of course, is whether the US relationship with the Philippines uh, is going to improve. Uh, Duterte uh, did not like our prior in- ambassador. Um, he spoke, of course, um, very disparagingly of uh, President Obama as well. And uh, he has been engaged, as uh, many of you may know, in an anti-drug campaign uh, in which he has um, uh, admitted uh, publicly several times that he's killed people and many people have come to the fore with a lot of evidence that when he was mayor of Davao, that he did um, kill many people. Uh, So the US appreciates the fact that he wants to wipe out the drugs and the question is can we find ways to help him through other means, drug rehabilitation centers, things of that nature. Um, where we can help him to wipe out the drug problem in ways that are consistent with our values and Philippine law. Uh, So whether or not this this is gonna work, I don't know, two very strong leaders, Duterte, President Trump, this is either, they're either going to, we we will have either what we call a new bromance, um, or we will have um, oil and water and there will be a great deal of friction and I could see the potential for that confrontation as well. the U.S.-Philippines alliance, in my view, is so important. Um, in part because of our long history and, and commitment to the Philippines, uh, its geographical uh, location. We, uh, as you, uh, I'm sure you know, although we were expelled from the from our use of bases there in the early 90s, we've signed a new agreement uh, that we call the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement (EDCA). Uh, by which we will be gaining some new access uh, to Philippine bases and given what China is doing in the South China Sea We need access in uh, areas where there's closer Proximity to the uh, the South China Sea because our bases in Japan and of course in Guam are pretty far away uh, So I think that's a big question mark as to where that relationship is going to go I, I think I just summarized that China has developed um, a very large number of uh, conventional uh, ballistic missiles. Um, some of them are actually dual use. Um, they're short range, medium range, uh, and uh, deployed. There's I I I would venture to say that they probably have more ballistic missiles probably than any other country in the world today. And so the question is why the U.S. hasn't done more about it. Well, I think that what you posit as, the, uh, as the, the former a US military response to it would have been easier than the diplomatic effort. Uh, we could have tried uh, traditional arms control with China, uh, but the Chinese have long seen themselves, whether we look at in the conventional realm or the nuclear realm as uh, inferior to the United States that have not wanted to lock themselves into any arms control agreement. And they've always viewed arms control as something that the US and the Soviet Union did that they were never really part of. Um, and it's something that is seen as is inherently uh, damaging to China. So I don't think that would have worked. Um, and then if we galvanize other uh, other states to do things, I think we've galvanized other states to criticize China in a lot of areas in the. Chinese have gone ahead anyway. Um, The fact, for example, that the Chinese have kept their number of nuclear weapons relatively small has nothing to do with pressure from the outside. That's their assessment of what they need. And if they believe that, for example, our missile defenses are threatening their deterrent, we will see them ramp up those numbers. So it's very difficult, I think, to influence China's decision on what they deploy. The Short-range ballistic missiles, as I understand it, the l- largest number of them, are opposite Taiwan, because the, the People's Liberation Army's biggest concern um, is to prevent Taiwan uh, from going independent, and they want to have capabilities to uh, ensure that they can prevent Taiwan from doing something that they'd be intimidated by military means. And they're focused on trying to make it very costly for the United States to intervene, which is why we see development not only of these destabilizing um, ballistic missiles, but also the development of area access and uh, anti-access area denial capabilities you may have read about the, the carrier killer, you know, the DF-21D. Um, I'm not convinced it works, we haven't yet seen it actually tested on a moving target, but it is intended to be able to take out an American aircraft carrier. So there's a broad range of very destabilizing Chinese weapons. But how do you prevent a country who is willing to spend an enormous amount of money on its military from developing these, uh, these capabilities? China's just launched about a, a week ago its second aircraft carrier. The first one was uh, a, uh, it got from the former, from Ukraine. Uh, and uh, so this is their first indigenous built uh, carrier. And, oh, you know, many people I think in the U.S. say, go build more of them because <laughs> that, that's something that, that, that we can deal with in a conflict, whereas some of these other capabilities are really, really very destabilizing. So I take your point. Well, the whole world is dependent on uh, Taiwan's role in the supply chain in, in semiconductors, um, including China. <laughs> uh, and uh, a lot of Taiwanese money has gone into into China uh, because uh, they've been very successful in using cheap labor there. Um, I think that really, you know, the bigger challenge when I think about um, you know Taiwan and the United States first from that Taiwan really needs to expand just beyond the semiconductor industry. It's that's that's the strongest part of its economy, but they need to they need to diversify. They need to have other um, areas and, and industries in which uh, in which they contribute. But I don't think that it is a in any way that it that there will be a threat to that supply chain because China is itself so dependent on it. If Taiwan um, were to over time pull out their investments um, and go elsewhere. And in fact, President Tsai is trying to encourage this. She has something called the New Southbound Policy, which is encouraging the companies in Taiwan to invest in Southeast Asia as well as South Asia. Uh, but this, this is really a challenge, uh, in part because China's already deeply invested in those countries, um, and also because so many in Taiwan have already invested so much in China. Uh, so I, I, I think ultimately the biggest challenge going forward is for Taiwan to reduce its dependence. You know, I remember when Secretary uh, uh, Clinton, then Secretary of State, uh, was, um, uh, she gave an interview, and uh, this was even before she was running for president, and she said publicly, Taiwan uh, exports 40% of, of its exports go to go to China. It's just too much, particularly with a country that claims sovereignty over you. It's just you has it's put itself in a very vulnerable position. So I hope that the U.S. can be helpful to Taiwan in that regard. A free trade agreement at least would signal other countries that they can do the same. Um, and I think Japan is also interested in an FTA with Taiwan. So.